You are listening to Sunday Gospel Reflections, a podcast made possible through the work of the Institute of Catholic Culture. I'm Father Hezekiah Carnazzo, founder and executive director of the Institute and your host for this program. In this podcast, we'll explore the historical and literary context, themes, and significance of the readings for the coming Sunday. This podcast was originally recorded as a video. For the full viewing experience, please visit us at instituteofcatholicculture.org. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. Heavenly King, Consoler, Spirit of Truth, present in all places and filling all things. The treasury of blessings and the giver of life, come and dwell within us, cleanse us of all stain, and save our souls, O good one. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Gaudete. Rejoice. <laughs> it's a I'm big wearing, Sunday. I'm wearing my pink today. Nice. I wrote, sorry. No. Sorry, fathers. Any priests listening? Deacons. Rose. My rose-colored shirt today. <laughs> I will say that is uh that is uh this is insider baseball here for all our <laughs> SGR people, but there is that that's the running joke, right? You that for some reason, the fa- the Catholic fabric maker people can't make a distinction between rose and pink. <laughs> and so they make pink vestments for the priests, which which uh, is kind of sad in the current no, climate no, in which we live. <laughs> so, yeah, it's like it doesn't feel good to wear pink. No, it doesn't. It doesn't no, thank God. Uh, yeah, in the Byzantine East, we do not have Gaudete Sunday. <laughs> but it's, it's just that reason alone. But uh, but no, but uh, it's a beautiful day and um, a beautiful day to take a deep breath as we uh, find ourselves in the midst of this time of preparation and reflect upon the gift of the Lord and the and his coming, which is now just around the corner. There. Yep. Right there. So let's take a look here, Annie. Uh, we're going to start with Isaiah. Yes. Yes. For the third Sunday of Advent, our first reading is Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2, and then verses 10 and 11. Nice. The responsorial psalm is not actually a psalm. It is taken from Luke chapter 1. That's right. That's pretty rare, I think. Yeah. Do not actually have a psalm for the responsorial. It happens. The gospel, John chapter 1, verses 6 through 8, and then 19 through 28. And the epistle is St. Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians, chapter 5, verses 16 through 24. Boom. Let's do it. Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2, and 10 11. 10 and 11. All right. Well, one and two are the most, the famous, the famous ones here, but let's go ahead. Yeah. Okay. Here we go. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me to bring glad tidings to the poor, to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and to release and release to the prisoners to announce a year of favor from the Lord and a day of vindication by our God. I rejoice heartily in the Lord. In my God is the joy of my soul, for he has clothed me with a robe of salvation and wrapped me in a mantle of justice, like a bridegroom adorned with a diadem, like a bride bedecked with her jewels. As the earth brings forth its plants, and a garden makes its growth spring up, so will the Lord God make justice and praise spring up before all the nations. Mm-hmm. Very beautiful. Yes, very beautiful. Actually, um, I like how I, I like how we went from verse 1 and 2 and then to 10 11. It kind of actually brought these two things together, the spirit of the Lord, and then you get a physical, the physical vision of that as a as a bride as a bridegroom, mm-hmm. as a bride adorned for her husband um which is um which is the prayer of vesting in our in the byzantine tradition oh um, really when the priest press, puts on the vestments is a yeah so what's the prayer do you have it memorized yeah. curious. <laughs> you had to ask me down on public television <laughs> as a bride he was adorned a bride she, the bride and a bridegroom i'm sorry 
I'm sure priests all read their vesting prayers. I, I have know. it right here. And I do I do know it by heart, but then I learned to, I learned a second version of it and then I got confused. So here it is. Well, let me tell you, you know, being on the radio every day. Yeah. And having we start each hour of our show in prayer and there I have forgotten like the second half of the canticle of Zechariah, <laughs> you know, like these prayers that you would normally have memorized yes like and and then and then you're in public and you completely forget them or you forget the history of the rosary you're on try being a priest yeah yeah i totally get it my soul shall rejoice in the lord for he has clothed me with a robe of salvation and covered me with a tunic of happiness he has crowned me as a bridegroom and adorned me with jewels as a bride Wow, and that's and the and the that's how you're putting on your vestments. The, the Stakarian, the 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 baptismal robe is put on. Basically, that's really beautiful. Yeah, that's really beautiful. So, um, what you guys cool. call the alb? Yeah, same, same, same type of an idea. So here we are in Isaiah sixty-one verses one and two and ten eleven. What do you want to know? Well, I want to know the probably context. don't have the answer. <laughs> Well, I'd like, of as we always do, get to get a, a sense of of the context here in Isaiah, what's going on in Isaiah at this point, and also, like, who's talking here? Who is, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me? Is that yeah. Isaiah speaking, or who is speaking? This is a good. Qu- this is a good question. This is I. This is the prophet speaking. Well, this is obviously this is the prophet Isaiah who's saying this, right? And this is customarily called one of the servant songs. In looking forward, of course, to, um, well, looking back to the suffering servant Isaiah, but also looking forward to Christ. And this, of course, is going to be applied um, um, by, or say, it's going to be co-opted by the author. (laughs) He's going to co-opt his own work. And that is God. Nice. (laughs) Who's speaking through Isaiah is actually going to use this text in Luke chapter in Luke chapter four in the gospel. But, but for our purposes, the prophet is speaking and he speaks in such a way as it, that it's almost like kingly language going on, mm-hmm. proclaiming good tidings to the afflicted. Now I, I would say though, that Isaiah is prophesying during the reign of Hezekiah. And we've talked about this before, how during the time of Hezekiah, there was a a bit of a, there was, we talked about this last week. There was a, a moment of, of, what do you want to call it? Uh, a cessation of, of the, of the problem. Okay. Uh, Hezekiah is a kind of a, a king who kind of restores things like Josiah after yeah. him. Um, and so there's a sense that Hezekiah is like the long awaited king. And therefore he becomes an image of the long awaited king. Right. Sure. Sure. But here we need to realize that the language that Isaiah is using that he's prophesying is language which is taken from, borrowed from the Jewish understanding of the Jubilee year. And that is the year of, of freedom, the year of release. And we've talked about this quite a bit in our Sunday Gospel Reflections. Now, there are new people. So if you you're like, OK, the Jubilee enough already. Well, you should never say enough already because it is the it is the the linchpin to understand Christ's work, yeah. and to to understand it, we need to go back a bit and look at the original uh, declaration for it in Leviticus in the book of Leviticus. Can we do this, Annie? Yeah, please. I'm all about it. Leviticus twenty five. Leviticus twenty five. One, so I don't lose it. What's that? I said I put a bookmark in Levi- in Isaiah 61 so I don't lose it. Yeah. So and I'm not going to catch all of this here today. We're not going to read all of it, but so I'm going to dance dance around a little bit in some verses. Just but we can begin with verse 1. The Lord said to Moses on Mount Sinai, say to the people of Israel, when you come into the land which I will give you, the land shall keep a sabbath to mm-hmm. the Lord. 6 years you shall sow your field and 6 years you shall prune your vineyards. And gathers fruits, but in the seventh year there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest. And now I'm going to come back down to down to verse eight. And you shall count seven weeks of of years, seven times seven, so that the time of the seven weeks of years shall be for you forty nine years. 
then, that is on the 50th year, you shall send abroad the loud the trumpet on the 10th day and, and the 7th month, the day of atonement, verse 10, and you shall hollow the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you when each of you shall return to his property and each of you shall return to his family. Okay, and he goes on, and and the, so the the idea the center, the idea behind the jubilee is that every seven days the Jews were to enter into that covenant day of the Lord, in which they enjoyed now here what they would enjoy for all eternity. Yeah, right. and that is resting in the Lord. And when that happens, when their identity with God is restored, when the covenant happens, when God and man become one, then the things that are true about God become true about men, right? And God is not a dictator, a slave master, but a lover and our heavenly father. And therefore, man is to live out this image and likeness most likeness most fully on the Sabbath day. And then multiplying that out, right, every seven years and multiplying that out every seven times seven and then boom, the whole thing comes off. And anybody who's fallen into debt, any land which has been sold, anything, any of these things where, where one person is, is in debt to another person had to had to be it became a slave, slaves are released. All of this happens so that Israel might live out its image and likeness, not of the slave master Pharaoh, but of the one who granted freedom, that is Yahweh. But unfortunately, they don't do this, right? And, and again, we've looked at this many times. And so I'll just point out for you a couple of examples of things you'd want to look at if you want to go further. And that would be 1 Kings chapter chapter 11. 1 Kings chapter 11, specifically verse 28. We don't need to even go there, okay? If you want to go there, you can go there. You look at verse 28 and you'll see that Joseph's descendants are actually enslaved by the king, um, by Solomon. This begins the disaster. If Israel will not live in the image and likeness of the God who granted them freedom, then they will intentionally return to the dominion of Pharaoh. And they themselves will become slaves again. Because the entire purpose and calling of Israel is to be a light to the nations, not a darkness to those around them. And the key passage here that we want to tie all of this together to is Jeremiah um, chapter, I'm going off of memory here, Jeremiah chapter 34. And again, you can read this for yourself in Jeremiah chapter 34, verse 8 and following in verse 16. But then you returned around, you turned around and profaned my name when each of you took back his male and female slaves whom you have ha had set free according to their desire, and you brought them into subjection to your slaves. Therefore, thus says the Lord, you have not obeyed me by proclaiming liberty, everyone to his brother and to his neighbor. Behold, I proclaim to you liberty to the sword, uh, to pestilence, to famine, says the Lord. I will make you a whore to the kingdoms of the earth, and so forth. So, so there you have it. Jeremiah is prophesying in the time following Isaiah, but Isaiah, of course, is tell, talking uh, not only about his own time, but the time to come. So we can apply this text not only to the reign of Hezekiah and Josiah, who attempted, attempted to restore the things, uh, the, the, the law of God, and failed because the people ultimately wouldn't follow them. So it, it can be applied maybe initially to them, initially the time in which Isaiah is preaching then, but ultimately it's going to look forward to the day when this will happen. And then we've talked about this again many times, that that looking forward to begins with a return from the Babylonian exile, Ezra chapter one, but it but ultimately, ultimately they end up as slaves in their own land, right? As we could turn there, that's worth it. Just as it ties, it ties all of this together very nicely. Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 36. Behold, we are slaves this day. Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 36. 
Behold, we are slaves this day in the land which thou gavest our fathers to enjoy its fr fruits and, and, and so forth. So they come back from Babylon. They're still slaves, right? They're still foreign kings ruling over them. This is the problem which leads to the New Testament. It comes when, when the Pharisees and Sadducees and everyone's looking forward to the Messiah coming. And when they're in expectations, we're going to see in a minute, they're looking with expectation that God is going to finally fulfill his promises of 2 Samuel chapter 7, that the throne of David would remain forever. They're looking in expectation. That's the problem they have to solve, that they themselves caused. And it's going to be the king who ultimately is going to grant this, this gift. I wanted to ask about that. I was as, as you were talking, I was thinking, like, is the lack of proclaiming the jubilee year is that like a king thing like does the king proclaim a jubilee year the, and the people the, follow or right. do the people just not listen to the king like what how well, does that, that happens work? too right but yeah. that happens too right what would you do what would you do if uh yeah all you good american you know people out here you've got some savings maybe you've loaned some money to somebody you know and maybe you're holding somebody else in debt and and all of a sudden, the president of the United States says, mm, I'm canceling all the debts. Okay, well, this is actually uh, kind of funny. This, but it's, it's yeah, situation actually. Totally, <laughs> the situation is completely different. But uh, the biblical situation is completely different. But yeah, so yeah, the king might do it, but are the people going to follow, right? Mm -hmm. And that's actually a great question, Annie. Because as we turn to the New Testament, we're actually not looking... We're not going to look in our in in the in the gospel reading at the passage of Luke chapter four today, but that's where, of course, right. Jesus proclaims the jubilee year. But we have to look at these second two verses of Isaiah, which are fundamentally important to our our biblical passage. So we're not going to look at at chapter four today, but but nevertheless, you can go look at Luke chapter four and then ask yourself who your king is. And then ask yourself if you hold other people in spiritual debt. Hmm. So it's one thing for the king to do it, which is his job. But it's right. another thing for the people to follow him, which is their job. Yeah. Right. Okay. Right. I went on a long thing there. You probably have other questions. Well, what are these two verses that are so important that we need oh, to Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Verse uh, Isaiah 10 and 11. And I turned away from my, I turned away from the text here. So let's go back. Isaiah chapter 61. One. So that whole, let me just go back there to verses one and two very quickly and just say that whole business of one and two is all about the Jubilee. This is, this is Jubilee language, right? right? The spirit of the Lord is upon me. That is the one who has granted his grace to has clothed me again in his royal robes because the Lord has anointed me to bring good tidings to the afflicted. Those suffering get good news, Right. That he has set me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, right? Those that are being held in captivity are freed. And the opening of the prisons to those who are bound to proclaim a year of the Lord's favor. That's the Jubilee year. Okay. And so now what does that look like in chapter 10 and, or verses 10 and 11? I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God. Mm, sounds familiar. Sounds For he has familiar. clothed yes. me with the garments of salvation, and he has covered me with the robe of righteousness, as a bridegroom decks himself with a garland, and a bride adorns herself with her jewel. So this now, what's going to happen is this grace—the grace of God—is once again going to be given to man, like a like a clothing. Okay, and this is super important now, as the church brings before us John chapter one and the baptism of the Lord, because of course, what the Lord is doing here is not only beginning his ministry of freeing those held in political bondage, physical bondage, but more importantly, he's dealing, he's dealing with a deeper issue. And that's a spiritual bondage by which people held people in physical bondage. And that spiritual bondage is one which was imposed upon man at the fall when he willingly placed himself under the dominion of the devil and broke from the freedom of God. And when he did this, the fathers tell us that at that moment, Adam realized he was naked. Yes. In Genesis chapter, in Genesis chapter two and three, chapter three, 
he realized he was naked. The fathers of the church tell us, yes, Adam and Eve were, were, were naked before the fall and after the fall clothed in animal skins, but, but they were not naked in the sense that we oftentimes would consider because the whole, the whole writing of, of Genesis is about something more than the physical body. The fathers tell us they were robed in the glory of God. And at the moment of the fall, they took the father's garments and cast them off and looked and discovered their nakedness. And their nakedness was human nature, no longer yoked to, no longer in communion with our heavenly father. Thus, thus our, our creator walks in the cool of the day and says, Adam, where are you? Where is my son? Not that he doesn't know where Adam's hiding in the bushes. Because his son's gone. His son has cast off his sonship. He's rejected his inheritance. He's rejected his relationship with his heavenly father. And therefore he finds himself in a new state. And this human nature divided from divine nature. Yeah. And that's what we should be looking for when we're talking about the work of Jesus as the Messiah coming to restore not only Israel not only to grant freedom from the Romans, but to grant freedom from the devil. No. That my point is the clothing. Yes, the bride yeah. adorned for her husband. And who's yeah. our husband? But the Lord, right? This is how yeah. the prophet Hosea speaks, prophet Jeremiah and, and, and others. I want to ask about you mentioned, you know, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God. You know, oh, that sounds familiar. Well, it's our responsorial verse, I guess. Yeah. Can I ask about this? Because um, the Magnificat, of course, is is what we're referring to in, in Luke. I had always connected that to the song of Hannah in in samuel i had never connected it to isaiah before so like what does that tell us about what our lady was was proclaiming in that in that beautiful prayer of the magnificat well i'll tell you in, in preparing to be together today i was um reading this because the church brings it together my eyes kind of brought it together and if you're reading verse 2 uh isaiah 61 2 to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Sion, to give them a garland instead of ashes and oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of faintheartedness, and so forth. Notice, notice verse 3. To grant those who mourn in Sion to give them a garland instead of ashes. Now, there's another level to our study that, that we always go to, and that is 2 Kings chapter 25, in which the remnant of Israel that remains in Jerusalem is there, and it's and 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 you could do yourself a favor after reading second second Kings twenty five is to read Jeremiah Jeremiah's Lamentations chapter one, mm. um, because these people and what they had gone through was so horrific, so horrific. Jeremiah tells us when Babylon laid siege to Jerusalem, it became so bad that the mothers began cannibalizing their babies, and. When you have to, you have to see Jerusalem sacked, burning, and then everyone being taken off in chains and a small remnant left there. And the horror of horrors of what they had seen because they had gone from being slaves to you know, okay, yeah, the slave masters are gone, but everything's destroyed. There's nothing left. There's nothing left. And there they are in ashes. And then Isaiah can speak to these people that the Lord is going to grant to those who are mourning in Sion to give them a garland instead of ashes. We hear that term, daughter Sion. 
applying it to the church, oftentimes, daughter Sion. Um, but this is the original daughter Sion, the remnant who is faithful, much like the remnant was faithful at, on Pentecost Day. This is the, the reference there. As we turned then, I, I point that out to you because as we turn to the responsorial psalm, and it is a responsorial psalm. It's a song, right? A psalm. Right, it's a right. song sung by the Virgin Mary. And that song that is sung by the Virgin Mary, which recalls, it recalls those who were mourning in Sion. It recalls daughter Sion. It recalls this remnant, Right. And Mary then, in the thought of the fathers, becomes her. She becomes daughter Sion. She becomes Jerusalem, who will then be restored, who will bear, if you will, the temple of God, who is Christ. Yeah. And so there's this just this a beautiful image there of who Mary is representing uh, all of the Old Testament gathered together for this moment when the grace of God comes pouring down upon her, filling her within and clothing her on the out. There's a beautiful practice in iconography, in Byzantine iconography, when we can go and pull these icons up here. This uh, practice in Byzantine iconography that you can see here, this is the iconostasis uh, mm -hmm. that is, is where your altar rail is. For those places where the altar rail is left, there's a gate here and a veil that, yep. and behind that is the altar and so forth. Okay. But here you'll see Jesus, he has a garment of red underneath and then a garment of blue on the outside, the blue representing his humanity and the red, his divinity. So he is God clothed in our humanity, takes him, takes our humanity upon himself. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the divine person. Oh, I see where you're going with this. Mary is the opposite. Mary wow. um, uh, remains human. Yeah. Mm -hmm. She's clothed on the outside in divinity and filled within with God himself. Wow. And so she becomes for us then this beautiful image of what God is going to do for all of us. For the whole of the church, Mary becomes this, this icon of the church. As I so oftentimes say, the, the birth of Christ is not simply an event which took place 2,000 years ago. It began 2,000 years ago with the virgin who is the summation of all of the Old Testament. And then what, she, what begins in her Un, uh, uh, flows out into the whole of the church and all those who have entered into her. Hmm. Go ahead. Amy. So beautiful. No, I don't have anything to add oh, to I that. I thought you wanted to jump in there. Sorry. No, no, no. Yeah. Daughter sign is such, such an important image for all of us to ask ourselves who we are, how we see ourselves and what God is going to do for us. Yeah. But let's go ahead and, and take a look, continue on in our study. Yeah. Okay. So let's head over to John chapter one. Mm, one of my favorite passages. Yeah. You're so John's... good at reciting all of John chapter one, like just no. super fast. I, you I used to do that I instead of me the, reading it. No, I memorized the <laughs> prologue a long time ago. And then now I can only remember the first three verses, but this is, this is later on in the text. Of course, we've got chapter one verses six through eight and then yep. 19 through 28. Okay, let's go ahead and go. <clears throat> okay, here we go. A man named John was sent from God. He came for testimony, to testify to the light, so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to testify to the light. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews from Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to him to ask him, who are you? He admitted and did not deny it, but admitted, I am not the Christ. So they asked him, what are you then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. So they said to him, who are you so we can give an answer to those who sent us? What do you have to say for yourself? 
He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the desert. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the as Isaiah the prophet said. Some Pharisees were also sent. They asked him, why then do you baptize if you are not the Christ or Elijah or the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but there is one among you whom you do not recognize, the one who is coming after me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to untie. This happened in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. Okay, so can you first of all just talk about the beginning of the Gospel of John so that we kind of understand sure. what what he's saying about John the Baptist here uh, being a one who is testifying to the light? What does that yeah, mean? Yeah, I, I would recommend, by the way, to go back and listen to Dr. Anthony Eslund's talk on the Logos that he just did. Yeah. In which he goes through in some detail this passage exactly. And so I hope if you haven't done that yet, that's uh, to do it. And then as a preparation for this Sunday. So I am not going to sit here and give a full you know, exegesis of chapters, chapter, you know, these passages because they're extreme. Like normally when There's I teach this, it's a minimum of an hour or two hours just <laughs> to get through the first few verses. But as Dr. Anthony Eslin was pointing out, John is clearly recalling his readers to the beginning, right? To Adam. In the beginning was the word and the word was was with God and the word was God, okay? And so he's clearly bringing us back there in which God speaks and the first thing that comes forth in his speech is, is light, yes, on, on day one. So John's whole uh, first chapter is actually divided in just this way to ensure that we are seeing his gospel in the background of Genesis chapters one, two, and three. Okay. And so as he begins the first day and light comes forth in the gospel of John and in Genesis chapter one, so we can continue to count with John here in chapter one. And you look at chapter one, verse 29, it says, the next day. So you have John chapter one, verse one is the first day. Then the next day, day two, verse 35, the next day, day three, verse mm -hmm. 43, the next day, day four, and then on the third day. So three more days and we have seven days. And on the seventh day in Genesis, there was to be a marriage. Yes. A marriage between God and man. And yet that, that, that is the moment when the, the great divorce takes place, right? But, but the fall of Adam and Eve between God as our heavenly, our husband and his people as his bride. And so Jesus comes to restore this. So on the seventh day, of course, in the gospel of John chapter two, verse one, we begin the wedding at Cana. Okay. Yeah. That's big picture, John. But, but here we're going right into verses six, six through eight, and then 19 through 28. Right. Okay. So talk about where this is taking place. And also, why is everybody questioning John the Baptist about what he's doing? Yeah. So we actually looked at this passage last week on accident because I was I got excited and I didn't look ahead and what the what the lecture <laughs> was. So if you if you're like, okay, I've heard him say much of this before, so you can just move on. But we'll go a little bit more depth today than we did last week. Because this this passage is deep and take, it takes some time to unpack it, but uh, but that's that's a great question to answer. First question is, and this is the testimony of John, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, "Who are you?" He confessed and he did not deny, but he confessed, "I am not the Christ." I always love that that point because, like, have you ever been like, "Who are you?" And you say, I, "I'm not God. I'm not." I'm not the Messiah. Have you ever said that? Exactly. No, no, but John knew what they were asking, right? He knew what was yeah. behind their question because he was begging the question. We talked about this on last week. We're not going to get into it again. And that was what was John was wearing, right? Right. But it's also what he was doing. He was baptizing people. And I think we can just simply turn to one passage in particular, and that's Ezekiel 36. And in Ezekiel 36, we have this prophecy of when things are restored, this is what's going to happen. Ezekiel 36, 24, 36, 24. Are you there? Not yet. You're getting, getting there. there. Ezekiel 36. I'm getting there. 
Jeremiah is a lot longer than I remembered. <laughs> it took me, I kept flipping and still Jeremiah, still <laughs> Jeremiah. Okay, here I am. Okay, Ezekiel 36, verse 24. For I will take you from the nations and gather you from the countries and bring you into your own land. That is when you return, right? When when all things are restored after the Babylonian exile, mm -hmm. I will sprinkle clean water upon you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. A new heart I will give you and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will take out of you the, fle uh, the your, your, your flesh, the heart of stone and and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and be careful to observe my ordinances. You shall dwell in the land which I gave your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. Okay, now this is, I. you can also write down, if you want to look, Zechariah 13.1. Zechariah 13.1, we're not going to turn there. You can write down Joel chapter 2, verse 28. You can write down Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 14, and a hundred other passages in which God's people expected when the Messiah comes, when everything's fixed, there's going to be this great cleansing with water. Well, why is it maybe a great cleansing of water? Well, a couple of reasons. First of all, that in the beginning, God parted the waters and formed man. It was through the waters that Noah sailed that he might come forth from those waters and be a man restored in the image and likeness of God. It was from the waters that Jonah came out of the mouth of the of the of the fish and on to to do the will of God again. It was it was through the waters that Israel passed through the Red Sea so as to escape the bondage to Pharaoh and be and receive the law of God at Mount Sinai. It was through the Jordan River that they put behind in their forty years of wandering and came into the Promised Land where 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 the, the lion flowed with milk and honey. So this idea of the cleansing of water is fundamentally important. Baptism is not a Christian concept. I shouldn't say it's a, not a New Testament concept. It's an Old Testament concept, which is why John's baptizing before the new covenant arrives, right? He, 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 John, the first chapters of the gospel are, are part of the Old Testament, if you will, is Jesus is the New Testament. Jesus is the new covenant. The covenant two parties are joined together, right? We talked about that last week, the joining of God and man. And so John is kind of that, that last prophet of the Old Testament who goes, there he is. There's the one we've been waiting for. There's the realization of our freedom from bondage to slavery. He in his person is this, right? Um, and so they are looking forward to when the Messiah comes, when the yoke of slavery is thrown off, there's going to be this great new washing with water. There's going to be a new passing through the Red Sea. There's going to be a new passing through the Jordan River. There's going to be a, a new flood, if you will. And, 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 and God's people are going to be restored in the image and likeness of God to do what they were meant to do, and that is worship him and be granted their freedom once again. This is what the Jews are looking for, hmm. the coming of Christ. Now, in particular, you have to ask yourself, and this is super important for our, our ICC SGR people you guys want to be learning your tools you got to get your principles down you gotta ask yourself who these people are who's asking the question right if you ask you get these habits who 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 what where and when why you ask the question you're going to find the answers they're right there in front of you right so who are these people that are asking the question right you tell me tell me annie who are um, they we've got priests and levites and mm -hmm. pharisees and mm -hmm. um, where are the Pharisees at? Verse 19. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed he did not deny. And then it says later, some Pharisees were also sent. Where? Um, hang on, no. I don't have the no. verses. You're you're right, Andy, but it doesn't say that. It says verse 24. In verse 24, that these guys were puppets. Mm-hmm. They were puppets of who? Verse 24. Oh. They were sent from the Pharisees. Pharisees. Yeah. So the, ultimately, the person asking this is the people asking this. So the Pharisees are asking this question. So I pulled out old uh, N.T. Wright, and I'll oh, share nice. with you very quickly. For an overall view of the Pharisees, both in this period and subsequent, it is not absolutely vital that we discover precisely which purity laws they obeyed and which they felt able to circumvent at which period. What matters is the ideology that motivated them to focus so strongly on purity and to relate it in any way to the purity demanded in the temple. Here, the most attractive thesis seems to be the following. Faced with social, political, and cultural pollution at the level of national life as a whole, one natural reaction with a strong sense on natural 
uh, was to concentrate on personal cleanliness, to cleanse and purify an area over which one did have control as a compensation for the impossibility of cleansing or purifying an area, the outward and visible political one, over which one had none. And so the Pharisees set themselves on this track to, to dedicate themselves to ritual purity. That This was the idea. If they could get God's people, everyone, to follow the law, the in particular the ritual purity laws that the priest did, then, then everything would be okay. God could come and restore uh, his, his dominion and the Messiah would be restored and the Romans would be kicked out. So they thought trigger the action of God by purifying the people. So the Pharisees get a bad rap. But in this case, and, and for good reason, I'll tell you why in a minute why they get a bad rap. But in this case, this is why they're interested in what John's doing. Number one, because he's doing what they're telling everybody they should be doing. Right, right? right. And there's gobs of people going down and doing, getting themselves ready. And so what's their first question? Are you the, are, yeah. are you doing Ezekiel 36, right? Are you the Messiah? Because I know when the Messiah comes, this is exactly what's going to happen. We've been telling everybody about this, right? And so there's your first, your first question, right? That are, are you the Christ? That's why they ask him the question because they expect him when the Christ comes, the Messiah comes. This is what's going to happen. Then the second question is, are you Elijah? Elijah, right? Yeah. And we talked about that last week. That or Elijah, the himself, prophet, who is the prophet. Yeah, the prophet for the Jews is is Moses. He is the prophet, right? And why would they be asking if if he's Moses? Well, there's a, there was an intertestamental te intertestamental text called the Assumption of Moses. Mm. Okay, and now some of you may be going, what the Assumption of Moses? Yeah, the Jews believed that Moses, when he died, was assumed into heaven. Which is the reason why nobody could find his body. Body, yeah. And this tradition, this, by the way, my Protestant brothers and sisters that are with us today realize this is how oral tradition works, and that is, it's just or it's handed on orally. This is one of those oral traditions. It ends up being written down in an in an extra biblical text, the Assumption of Moses, but then that oral tradition which was written down in a non-biblical text is co-opted by God <laughs> because it ends up in the epistle to Jude. Yeah. Over here, the epistle of Jude, right there before the book of Revelation in verse eight, Jude verse eight. Yet in like manner, these men in their, in their dreamings defile the flesh, rejecting authority, revile the glorious ones. Now, He's talking, he's talking here about the um about the dualists, the Gnostic dualists. But then look what he says. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, disputed about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a reviling judgment upon him, but said, The Lord rebuke you. So there it is. That's that's the oral tradition. That at the when Moses died, Satan and the archangel Michael met. Yeah. And of course, the devil is rebuked by God, and Moses is taken bodily into heaven, which is why he can show up at the transfiguration. He right? shows up at the transfiguration, which with the other person who's bodily taken to heaven—that's Elijah, Elijah, right? Yeah. But there's another reason why that's you the prophet. So they're expecting when the Messiah comes, just like as they're expecting Elijah to return. We looked at that in Malachi. Chapter four, verse five, I believe last week. So they expected Moses to return because just as Elijah was baptized in the Jordan River to prepare himself to be taken into paradise in the fiery chariot. So Moses prepared the people by taking them through the Red Sea, which wow. St. Paul tells us was a form of baptism. Turn your Bibles wow. with me. To 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Verse 1. You guys got to go faster. We're flipping our Bibles a lot today. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1. You with me? 
Yep. I want you to know, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Woo! Baptism in the Old Testament. What does it mean to be baptized? It means to be plunged, baptizing, to plunge. Yeah, you look up in your catechism, right there's your section on baptism, when you're, and it's going to tell you that exactly right there, okay? Baptizing. To plunge, they're plunged into Moses. Why does he say this? Because they're standing at the edge of the Red Sea, and who's coming down on them? Who's barreling down on them? Death is imminent. Pharaoh, right? And 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 his chariots. So now Moses parts the Red Sea. They look across the sea. Remember, I said this, I think, before, about, about how the, the sea kind of would have, what's that called in your perspective, right? Yeah, your perspective. Across yeah, the sea. Yeah, yeah converge. They walked into certain death. And at that moment, they had to die to themselves that they might live to Moses' vision. And Moses said, walk, and they walked. And they left their, their, their judgment behind them, and Moses' judgment became theirs. Wow. Moses' vision became theirs. Moses' life became theirs. In that moment, they were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And that is what the Jews wanted to have happen, that the slavery to the Romans, much like the slavery to the Egyptians, might be thrown off and their covenanted relationship with God restored. Wow. Are you the Christ? Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? Yes. And then we continue our text, Annie. Is there any significance as to where this is taking place? Yeah, well, I'm really glad you I'm really glad you said the exact same spot that Moses carried the Ark of the Covenant across the Jordan River. The wow. exact spot. Yes? Wow. And that's the spot John goes to and is baptizing. You can visit the location today. I love taking people there. Um, we get in the water. Let me tell you right now, if you ever go to the Jordan River and you're with a tour group and the tour guide says, well, there's the Jordan. You can take some pictures and go to the uh, souvenir area. You have to be back on the bus in 10 minutes, which is what happened to me. I was on a my first pilgrimage to the Holy Land with a particular Indiana Jones type figure that is on uh, national Catholic television regularly. And um, we got out of the bus and, and, and the tour guide says, here we are. We got 15 minutes. The bathrooms are over there. You can take your pictures of the Jordan River. There's the souvenir thing. You got to be back on the bus. <laughs> not me i was diving I, woo, I was into the water i was helping people get down the water you go to jordan river you got to get baptized in the jordan river get plunged into there three times you're right in that spot beautiful and receive the blessings of god not rebaptized. it's no but, you, but look okay i, I just a, hey look, i just want to make sure because i don't want you getting our baptism emails. is a constant reality in our life yeah a constant reality this is why ask the priest uh, to, to bless you with, with holy water. So yeah, I take people down the Jordan River and we bless them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit into the waters of the Jordan River. I'm not baptizing people that have already been baptized, but we are re-engaging in this reality of our baptism, which is always new for us. The putting off of sin is a great place to go to confession, to put off the old man, to be renewed in the Spirit of God. And um, it's it's there that the that uh, God's people crossed the Jordan and entered so into cool. the promised land. And much like Adam coming forth from the waters or Noah coming forth from the waters of the flood and receiving wow. that newness of life. Okay. So they ask him if he's Elijah and he said, I am not, but I remember SGR I don't know. It was somewhat recently where Jesus said that he is Elijah. Yeah, we so talked about this, but we talked about this last week, Annie. So I'm just going to say you can go there very quickly, guys, but I don't want to go too far because we did this last week. Matthew chapter 11, verse 14 and following. Jesus says, if you are, uh, you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come, right? We talked about that Malachi mm -hmm. chapter four, verse five. Last week, or in New America, it says chapter three, verse whatever it is. Oh, right, right. And so remember what I was saying about how the Pharisees and Sadducees are in a fight 
right? In fact, you can see this in Acts, Acts chapter 23. Acts chapter 23. Make a note for yourself on this. Acts 23, verse 6 through 8. Acts 23, 6 through 8. But when, but when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out with the council, Brethren, I'm a Pharisee and a son of the Pharisees. With respect to the hope and the resurrection, I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angels, nor spirits, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. So the Pharisees are believing the resurrection. And the Sadducees do not, right? It's, I love this mo moment with with Saint Paul because he's he basically he he, to... he lights a the the bomb in the middle of the whole thing by throwing out the fight, and also they start fighting against each other. <laughs> Forget about Saint Paul, and uh, but uh, that's another point. Reminds the me point of the music is, man. Yeah. The point is that the Pharisees, the Pharisees, I do believe, are trying to use John as a puppet. Because if John says that he is Elijah who is to come, then he will, by saying that, affirm the resurrection and John will be on the side of the Pharisees and he will not be used as a pawn. Oh. Okay. And so he knows what they're asking. Is, is he Elijah? Is John the Baptist Elijah? Let me ask you. Is he the uh, prophet Elijah? Not technically. No, no, no. Right. So, but he is in the spirit of Elijah. Right? So Jesus, he is the one who is to come. He's who Malachi was prophesying about. Okay? But he's, but obviously, physically, sure. okay, another man. So, okay. okay. So let's go back to our text. Yeah. So I guess my last question with this is just, I mean, this is two weeks in a row that, that we focused on John the Baptist. I mean, what is the church telling us here? Yeah. Well, what is John the Baptist's big thing? And I, I think you, you may have asked this last week regarding regarding repentance and the difference between the baptism of John and the baptism of Jesus. Okay. Listen to St. Basil the Great. Water fulfills the image of death and spirit gives us the earnest of life. The water receiving the body as in a tomb prefigures death, while the spirit pours in the quickening power, renewing our souls from the deadness of sin unto their original life. And St. Athanasius, Athanasius says, Nor does repentance recall men from what is according to their nature. All that it does is make them cease from sinning. John, St. Ephraim says, whitened the stains of sin with ordinary water so that bodies might be rendered suitable for the robe of the Spirit that is given through the Lord. This is why... We always clothe the newly baptized in a white baptismal robe to symbolize the restoration of the original robe that Adam wore in paradise before the fall. Yeah, there's some another aspect here that's that's important. Just and this is not some spiritual insight. You know that that part of it is so beautiful, but that I, I really want to help you realize and that is in john these themes that keep going you asked about light and when asking about light we also encounter darkness yes in the prologue right in the beginning in chapter one verse one in the beginning was the word and the word was with god and the word was god he was in the beginning with god and all things were made through him and without him was made nothing that was made in him was life and life was the light of men and the light shines in the darkness and the darkness could not overcome or or comprehend it could not take it in yes Darkness in John is always pushed out because this is exactly what happened in the beginning. Yeah, darkness was over the face of the abyss and God spoke and light came in and cast out the darkness. So here in, the, in, in John's chapter one, Jesus enters in and wherever there is darkness, that is sin and death, it is always coupled with inability to 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 take in our lord to actually the latin the latin text here says it uses the word comprehendero to to they could not it could not comprehend it could not take right uh, yeah. uh grasp it and so there's there's in john always there's a, a struggle with knowledge there's always a struggle with understanding 
and it's coupled always with with that with that darkness and sin yeah and so notice in verse well notice in verse 10 he was in the world and the world was made through him yet the world knew him not right it could not understand him it's in john there's always that darkness among men as to who jesus really is uh, and it happens it happens for the for the Pharisees, but it also happens for the apostles, right? It's Mary Magdalene mis mistook him as the as the gardener, right? The disciples on the road to Emmaus didn't know it was him at first. No. Nicodemus uh, in chapter three, it comes to him in darkness and says, we know who you are. And Jesus rebukes him, right? But now look at verse 26. This is part of our text here. John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. Now, who's he speaking to? He, he's speaking to the, those sent by the Pharisees. Yeah. Why is it that the Pharisees are unable to know? Why is they're able to comprehend? Why they, 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 they couldn't? They're still asking, who are you to John? And they're not able to see the Messiah for who he is, right? And why is that? Because the Pharisees, the stinking hypocrites who are telling everybody to get themselves purified by washing, they themselves refuse the baptism of John. So look at this. Why is it they send others down there? Because they themselves don't want to be found down there. Turn with me very quickly. Luke chapter 7. Here we go. Yeah, there it is. Luke chapter 7. Verse 30, Luke chapter 7, verse 30. But the Pharisees and the and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for them, not having been baptized by John. Now that just blows the whole thing right out of the water. The situation down the Jordan River is one of tension. And John knows it and Jesus knows it. And then Jesus goes down and in front of these these lackeys of the Pharisees goes down and is baptized at the hand of John. Um, and remember, and we're going to have a chance to get in the gospel of Mark very soon. Remember it's the Pharisees then are in cahoots with the Herodians, Herodians yeah, who are going to arrest John and kill him. And the Pharisees are watching it all happen. The very ones who were claiming that the people of God ought to get themselves right, were behind the scenes showing them to be yoked to the foreign dictator and slave master that is the Romans and ultimately to the dictator of mankind that is the devil. And so, so the tension is there. It all comes out in chapter 3, verse 1 of John. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees who refused the baptism of John named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night and said, Rabbi, we know who the, you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered, no, you don't. You don't know who I am because you can't know who I am. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born anew, is born anothen, to be born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb? The, the word anothen, born anew, can be translated in both above and again. And of course, oh, Nicodemus yeah. is thinking on the natural man level because he's not been baptized. So Jesus explains it to him. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, Nicodemus, what are you doing? Get yourself baptized so that you might be prepared to see that I am not only a teacher sent from God, but I am the Messiah born of the virgin. That's what I have to say about the text here, Annie. You maybe have other questions. Well, I'm just wondering, finally, for the gospel why we're getting this on rejoice or gaudete sunday because this is what it's all about this is the this is the game guys 
it's not enough for Jesus to be born of the Virgin Mary. You must be born again. You must come forth man restored to the image and likeness of God, covenanted with God. Jesus, as the Virgin Mary, is the seed of the church. Jesus is the seed of the Christian. Yes, and baptism allows us to enter into this reality by allowing us to be born again, coming forth like Adam at creation, like Noah in the ark, like Israel in the Red Sea, like the Jews in the Jordan River, like Elijah crossing the Jordan being taken to heaven, be restored in the image and likeness of God. This is the purpose of the incarnation. Do you, you know and those maybe last year I said this, but it's it's we're gonna be saying it a lot over the next few weeks that Christmas is not originally it was not originally celebrated as an individual feast on December 25th. Right. It was originally celebrated on January 6th, which was the day in which we celebrated the baptism of the Lord, because the historical event of the birth of Christ only finds its fulfillment in the revelation which takes place in the Jordan River when the Father finally says to this man standing there, like he did to Adam, son. And please, I'm not a Jehovah's Witness. I know that the one standing there is God in the Jordan, but he is also a man. And the miracle that takes place in the Jordan River is the miracle when the Father says again to Adam, and now the new Adam, son, in whom I'm pleased. Wow. Yeah. And that's, I mean, as we look at the epistle here, um, Paul telling us to rejoice always, but to also be ready, just as you were saying. Let's read that text, Annie. Yeah. First Thessalonians chapter five, starting with verse 16. Let me know when you're ready. Okay. First Thessalonians. First Thessalonians chapter five. Five, verse 16. Yes. 16. Yep. Okay. Let's go. Brothers and sisters, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in all circumstances, give thanks. For this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances. Test everything. Retain what is good. Refrain from every kind of evil. May the God of peace make you perfectly holy. And may you entirely, spirit, soul, and body, be preserved blameless for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will also accomplish it. This is a beautiful, on this on this Sunday of rejoicing, Gaudete, this, this Sunday in which man is supposed to, to do what he's supposed to do for all eternity. Listen to these words. In all circumstances. Do you want to know what it means to be a Christian? It means to be a Eucharistic person. Yes? Thanksgiving. Greek Eucharist. Yeah, the same the same word, evkaristo. Thank you to give thanks. This is this is the calling of the Christian to be restored. And I, I spoke about this uh, earlier a few weeks ago now at the ICC, well, a month ago now at the ICC, in our talk on the Eucharist in the Garden of Eden, um, and the Thanksgiving sacrifice. Man is meant to be one who is always lifting, realizing the gift of God in his life. And of course, the only proper response to a gift is to say, thank you. We're going to pull up here on screen this beautiful image of the early Christian woman praying, the Orans, lifting her hands in prayer, because I think it most beautifully shows in a physical way, the spiritual truth, the person of thanksgiving. I want to take this opportunity here at the ICC on Gaudete Sunday to rejoice for a moment in the many benefactors that have stepped forward at the ICC to support us during our Christmas fundraising drive. We are not there yet, but we are getting there. 
And I am starting to feel that, um, you know, I don't know, like a child on Christmas morning um, to think about what we are going to be able to do by the grace of God and the generosity of our ICC family uh, for the service of the kingdom of God, the service of the church uh, to help others find that joy in their lives, that rejoicing in their life because they've learned to do the one thing necessary, and that is to give thanks to God who has given us everything. To Christ our God be glory both now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. Thank you for joining us for the Institute of Catholic Culture's Sunday Gospel Reflections podcast. The Institute of Catholic Culture is an adult catechetical organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. I invite you to explore all we have to offer, including over 900 hours of on-demand catechetical opportunities, and sign up for our upcoming events by visiting instituteofcatholicculture.org.